the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 412 for Sunday, August 12th. The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions, you send in your tips, you send in your cool stuff found, we share our own cool stuff found, we share our own tips and yours, and we try to answer your questions as best we can. Together, we come together to learn a little something new, and this is a show of a lot of 12s. We've got August 12th, it's show 412, and it's 2012, here in Durham, New Hampshire it is anyway. I'm Dave Hamilton. <laughs> and here, m- making my best effort not to act 12. <laughs> That's awesome. John F. Braun. Yavo. All right. And uh, a, a shout out to everyone in the chat room at macgeekgab.com slash stream. Every Sunday night at uh, about nine o'clock is when uh, things heat up there. So if you are so inclined, join us there and everybody that's there. Thank you for joining us. This has become quite the party each week. So we really appreciate having everybody there. This show is uh, is sponsored by Barebones and 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 also by Apollon. We'll talk a little bit about them uh, them later. You want to get right into the the tips, John, or do you have anything to share before we do that? <sighs> Eh, it's too early. Got a new toy, but just started playing with it. So, well, tell. Can you tell us what the toy is, or do you want to? Do you want to keep it a secret? Because that's okay. You know, it's good to. I mean, well, I'll uh, well I'll tell you the difficulty. No, so um, yeah, it's a, it's the uh, Lantronics, uh, the home server we were oh, talking about. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, it's it's working swell with the USB printer, but I'm having some uh, difficulties getting it to talk to my uh, Battlefield printer. So, oh, interesting. <laughs> So, um, well, we'll see. I mean, well, supposedly, I mean, looking at it, it has provisions to talk to uh, printers using different protocols, not just USB printers. So that's the main part here. And I'm just just uh, going through it. Cool. Well, you know, that's how it goes. Uh, Hopefully tech support can help, maybe. Yeah, I, I, I try that. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, like you said, you, uh, you perhaps you'll have more to tell us in the future. All right. Let's dive in. Uh, let's dive into a couple of tips here. Uh, Karsten actually sent us a note with uh, all kinds of 10.8 stuff. He says uh, in no particular order, this is uh, in, in mountain mountain lion. He says MT. I think that's, I think he meant ML. But uh, he says in the messages app, it can be tedious to delete one message at a time and click yes when prompted by pressing and holding option while deleting the messages. They just delete. That's tip number one from Karsten. Tip number two in the notification center, which is now in the upper right hand corner of Mountain Lion. You can quickly disable notifications by pressing and holding command and option while you click the notification icon in the upper left. And he meant upper upper right. Uh, if you do that, you'll see that it goes from solid black to a gray and you can toggle that back and forth. In fact, while we're doing this show, I am going to toggle mine off because I updated my 
podcasting machine to 10.8. First time I've it's the first time this machine has ever been on a point zero release of any operating system, but it was having so much sluggish sluggishness with the ten seven four, which I upgraded it to just a couple of weeks ago that uh, I figured I couldn't go backwards with mountain lion. And actually it has gone forward in so many ways. So uh, I am very confident now having done five machines with just the over the top upgrade, including two that we're having trouble with lion um, that now are no longer having trouble, no longer slowdowns. I don't have to do the volume button thing to unfreeze it and all of that. It's so much better uh, that I'm now comfortable, John, saying that the over-the-top upgrade for Mountain Lion is is now my recommended way to go. How do you feel? I concur because in 100% of the cases where I upgraded to uh, Mountain Lion, I've had success. And how... <laughs> And I, I mentioned that I'd done five machines. How many? How many have you done? Uh, I I don't like to give it in those terms. I see. I think it just takes away from the the impact of saying a hundred percent. Then we'll no, leave it at a hundred percent. One one of one. One of one. Hey. And now you know I'm still debating because my uh, as you may know my mini is still on. Uh, what is it on? Uh, ten point. Uh, you know, back in the old days here, ten point six. Yeah. Point eight. So do I upgrade it all the way? Do I do I bring it up to uh Mountain Lion or just Lion? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe just all the way. Nah, I think I'm gonna do Lion. Just just so we can have a, a slightly uh, older machine to uh to reference here. Hey, actually, that's uh, not a bad thing. Yeah, that has been helpful in the past, certainly with the show. Yep. All right. Uh let's see, what uh what do we have here? He says uh you can read a web page fast without leaving the keyboard. Press command L to select the address bar. Go to the web page of your choice and then use the space bar to scroll down shift and the space bar to scroll back up. Press command L again to select the address address bar and press space when uh, which displays recent searches. So very cool stuff. Although I have to say um, that's one of the things, in fact, perhaps the one thing in mountain lion and also lion now uh, that I'm not all that happy with is Safari six. It's aggr- over aggressive with its caching um, simply so that Apple can say they've got a faster web browser than somebody else, but it, it's a, it's a problem. But anyway, I digress. Karsten, yeah, it happens. It happens. Yeah. Karsten writes that save as is back in text edit and others go to the file menu and press the, press the option key duplicate changes to save as uh, and you can close changes to close and close changes to close all windows. He says you can rename or move a document while uh, in the application. He says, I believe this is new, but not sure when you are in an application like text edit word, Excel pages, hover over the documents title bar, a small arrow shows up, expand that arrow. You can twist it open and you can now rename or even move the document to a different toolbar. Very cool stuff. That's good. That's good stuff. Anything else to add before we, uh, before we move on? I think we've got a question from Karsten later on in the show, but, uh, but we, will, we will address that during the question segment. Indeed. All right. I think then that means we're moving to Douglas's tip. He says, I just listened to show 411 where you talked about making a USB boot flash drive with Mountain Lion. The new version of Carbon Copy Cloner has the function of making a bootable flash drive directly from the Mountain Lion installer application. 
The nice thing is that the uh, carbon copy cloner function is that you can install it on a five gig partition of a USB flash drive. I partitioned an eight gig flash drive with five and a three. I installed mountain lion on the five and we'll use the three to keep an up to, up to date combo update when it comes out, as well as some apps I will always install on a new machine. I did this in the past and it worked great. Uh, in addition, you know, we talked about the problems with creating a um, mountain lion installer uh, and that it would error out if you just did it with disk utility. Apparently uh, many people, including many of you have been having luck uh, doing that, but first mounting the install ESD disk image. So, uh, so if you want to try it that way, instead of using lion disc maker or carbon copy cloner, uh, try mounting the disc image first and then creating uh, the USB boot disk from there. Apparently that uh, works a whole lot better. So that's good stuff. Anything to add there, John? Um, well, they have a special now, actually. <laughs> What's the special? Until the end of the year, uh, carbon copy cloner. Oh, really? Our friends there. Uh, yeah, 25% off. So yeah, some people know now it's, a, it's of course, a, a commercial product. No now. Longer, uh, you can still use the old product. But, so not, but not under Mountain Lion, or at least it's not certified under Mountain Lion. Right. So the, the, yeah, the way moving. So, so if you have an older version running on the older version of the OS, that'll certainly still work. Um, but yeah, now the, the, the new gig, I guess the retail price is thirty nine ninety five, and, uh, well, it says here ends August 12th, uh, 2996. Well, that's, uh, so it's, it's, that's great for everyone listening in the chat room. <laughs> oh, today, was... today is August 12th. I, I know. Okay. <laughs> Up to the minute news here. Up to the minute. That's right. Uh, okay. And one, uh, one last tip from Karsten before we move on to some questions here, he says, Gatekeeper in Mountain Lion is on by default. It is set to restrict everything except Mac App Store purchased items and also trusted developers. Uh, what if you know that you have an app that's okay to install, but when you try your newly installed Mountain Lion OS refuses? Well, there's a couple things you can do. One is you can go into system preferences and uh, what, what is it listed as? Is it, I think it's in security, but I'm going to pull that up just to make sure I get this right for you. So you go to system preferences, security and privacy. And uh, yeah, that's where it is on the general tab there of that. You have allow applications downloaded from and by default, it's the middle one uh, you could change it to anywhere, which would allow anything. But Karsten has an even better solution just to do it one at a time for apps. He says, I found that when you right click on this app that won't launch otherwise, and select open. So you just right click and choose open. You will then receive the prompt that asks you to authenticate that app. And that will then make it so that gatekeeper allows it each and every time. So that's uh, that's a good little workaround. I've actually found myself doing that a couple of times because I've had apps that, you know, came from people that haven't joined the trusted developer program or perhaps won't join the trusted developer program, but all the same, they're apps that I've chosen to trust. And so, Right click and off you go. And you know, I like the way they did it. It was interesting because on at least one other podcast where I was part of a group talking about this, that there were differing opinions on how they did this. Yep. And some were like, well, it's a pain in the neck. And I was on the side of as it should be. Right. <laughs> a, 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 circumventing security meant to be sure that you're running a piece of software that's not going to damage your machine should not be easily circumvented. 
Right. And I think some past uh, implementations in, in both Mac and other operating systems were too permissive. They were like, well, this doesn't meet this criteria, so you want to go ahead anyways? And it made it too easy to just say yes. In this case, you have to know enough to be able to uh, right-click or whatever click on something and then choose open, at which point you get the secret button saying, oh, all right, right. You know, I'll run it. No, but, <laughs> but that's uh, good. But I, think that's the, I think it's the right way to do it because it, it's, it's a good balance. It, it allows people like you and I, and, and assuming anyone who's listening, that if you trust something, you can do it. But for people that are clueless, it... it, it, it uh, well, no, I, I agree with you because in in Windows, when they first started doing this stuff, and I honestly don't know how it is now, but I know when they first started doing it, what would if essentially happen? And I'm, I'm comparing apples to not apples here, but but essentially in a similar scenario, what would happen is Windows would pop a dialogue saying, you know, this is from somebody that's not trusted. Do you want to trust it? And there was an OK button right there that you could click. And so people got. Hey, no, nobody reads those dialogues, right? So especially if you see an OK, you just click OK is what the average user tends to do. And now you've just authenticated this thing that your system was trying to tell you, hey, you you unless you know about this, don't do this, you know. And uh, so, yeah, I agree with you. I like the way that Apple's done it, that you have to sort of jump through hoops to uh, to authenticate these things that are not from people that have have, uh, you know, for whatever reason, signed up with with Apple. Yeah, it's good. Good, good. Our first sponsor today, John, is uh, is actually a developer that's been trusted uh, by the Mac community and by Apple for a very, very long time. And that is Barebones at Barebones.com. BB Edit is their flagship product. And that's what we're talking about here. BB Edit has been editing. Uh, people have been editing on the Mac with BB Edit for over 20 years now, which is uh which is really a testament to to what they've created here, and obviously they've they've updated it substantially since uh, since it since it originally came out. It is Mountain Lion certified, Mountain Lion compatible. You can buy it from the Mac App Store. You can buy it from them, uh, and you can even go and download a uh, a trial version, which I highly recommend. But it is much cheaper than it ever used to be at forty nine ninety nine now. So uh, so you can get BB edit this cla- world class text editor for just 50 bucks. And it does so much more than just editing text. Uh, I use it all the time to sort text. Um, one th- one thing that's really cool in BB edit. Let's say you you have a list of uh, of of files, let's say, and they have numbers in the front of them, but it's just a text list. It's, you know, it says one period, two period, three period, and it goes up through 30 or something. Well, let's say you want to take those numbers off the beginning. It's, it's really hard to just go and select the, the left column of something that's not built into in like a spreadsheet where you can, you know, separate it out in columns, but BB edit totally makes it possible where you would normally take the mouse to drag and select, um, you know, a, a line or whatever. If you hold down the option key while you're, you're clicking and dragging with the mouse, it lets you select up and down in BB edit across lines as though they were columns, as though each line were its own column. And you can select, you know, a whole page worth of just the, you know, left two characters of everything on that page. Uh, so try it sometime. Hold down the option key and drag. I do this all the time. And it's just one of those great little tips. And and uh, and BB Edit is one of the few pieces of software that, that does this the, the right way. So uh, that's just one way. And like I said, I also sort text with it. 
Uh, it's great. It's got a little word counter and character counter and line counter sort of automatically there at the bottom of the page. So if you want to know how many lines you've got in a file, just paste it into an empty BB edit document and boom, it's right there. That's a BB edit from Barebones software. Go download a trial first at barebones.com. And then once you make your decision to buy, uh, you can choose whether to do it at the app store or direct from, uh, from Barebones. It's uh, it's the same price for you either way. So BB edit from barebones.com. Shall we move on to some iTunes questions, Sean? Oh, iTunes. Yeah, why not? <laughs> um, you know, this, this reminds me, and I'm, I'm going to jump ahead of ourselves here. Um, I've been wanting to mention this for several weeks. I had a big problem with my iTunes library where it stopped matching. iTunes match stopped working on the main computer that I used. And I went through this whole rigmarole. And what I wound up having to do was uh, rebuild my iTunes library. And then I could rematch. But what happened then is iTunes decided that it didn't think that I, that I had, um, matched files. And so I had to go through this whole thing, but because I, and then I got it fixed and it it actually worked out. Okay. But then I was stuck with this situation where iTunes thought that it was not syncing my, my, my iPhone, my iPad and my iPod uh, all thought they were syncing with a different iTunes library because I had rebuilt mine. And, uh, and so I went round and round with Apple tech support and they were like, try this, try that. And finally, you know, what would happen is when I would go to sync, it would say, this iPhone, iPad, whatever is synced with a different library. If you click yes, I will erase your device and start over again. But all the same data was in my library. And even if I looked like, you know, when you go to the apps tab there uh, or the music tab, all the stuff was like checked, but, but grayed out because it wasn't enabled on that device. And so finally I thought, you know, I have a backup of this, so I'm just going to click the erase button and see what happens. And despite what it said it was going to do, what it actually did was it sort of processed for a minute or two. And then it just came up and said, sync done. And it, what it did was it figured out, Oh, wait a minute. You know, we are actually in sync. We just didn't realize we were in sync. So now let's say we're in sync and, and everything magically fixed itself. And this was after like two weeks of emails back and forth with Apple and them basically giving up on this. All I had to do was say, yeah, go ahead and erase it. And, and it didn't erase anything. All my data was the same in my apps that nothing got erased. It just, you know, reforced that sync. And I did it with three devices. And once I realized that it worked with one, I did it with the other two and it was totally fine. So if you find yourself in that predicament, don't waste two weeks. Like I did just click, the. make sure you have a backup first so that you can recover if it doesn't work, but just click the button. It'll be all right. It's good stuff, John. All right. Ken has a question. Unless you have anything to say about that, John. I've, I've had no problems with my libraries. <laughs> that's good. That's a, that's, I have, it's been a long time since I've had any, any corruption or anything with my iTunes library. So. All right. Ken writes some time ago, I put my entire iTunes collection on my Drobo for the redundancy and the ability not to worry about the size of the library growing since the upgrade to lion. I've had lots of trouble though. Uh, the Drobo drops out. That is the drive unmounts unbidden and unannounced. So when I try to play a song in iTunes, the drive can't be found. Problem can be fixed by rebooting my Drobo, but that's a pain. I've replaced my internal drive with a one terabyte drive. So I figured I'd put my iTunes data back on that, but I can't do it. 
Syncing in almost any fashion, ChronoSync, Carbon Copy Cloner, and even Finder Copies all fail after some time. Some of the music has made it over to the new drive, but not all. Resetting the location of the iTunes music library within the program's advanced preferences works in the sense of resetting where the new music goes, but the library still sees or thinks that the entire collection, even the songs that are missing, are elsewhere. If I try to play one of the songs that failed to make it over to the new library, I get the let's go find it dialogue, which gets old pretty fast. Is there a way to reset the iTunes library so that it no longer sees the music that didn't make it over? but does see the stuff that moved before the disconnect occurred. If that happened, I could use my iTunes match subscription to download all the missing music. A complicated one or so it seems to me. Feel free to tell me that it takes more effort. No, no, never, never, never. Okay. So this is a good, this is where iTunes match can help you. Um, so there's a, there's a couple of solutions for this. Uh, I found a website at uh, digitalqa.blogspot.com. We'll put a, a link in the show notes that explains a process of using two playlists, one smart uh, and one static to figure out which songs are actually there in your library, but not in your library. And, um, and, and then you can delete from the smart playlist. So it's actually pretty elegant. It's pretty good. Uh, another place to go is uh, Doug's Apple scripts, which is just an awesome resource. Um, and Doug's got one called track sift that will, uh, delete dead tracks, which is essentially what, what you've got going on here. So that, that might, uh, that might, that might do it for you too. And then lastly, I would check out uh tuneupmedia.com for tuneup, which is a kind of a general iTunes cleanup uh, thing. It can, it can do a lot of different stuff and, and uh, cleaning up, you know, orphan traps or orphan tracks and deleted tracks are, are one of the things that, uh, that it can do. So, those are uh, those are the three. I'd honestly do the the, the first one I mentioned, the smart playlist um, thing, because uh, it's pretty elegant and I think it'll work. So any thoughts on this, John? Of course. And my thought is HT1451. OK. Which is a support article that is titled iTunes, how to recreate your iTunes library and playlists. Well, I, but that. His problem is that he's done that, but the songs that his iTunes library points to are not accessible anymore. So he right, wants, I'm sorry, I didn't see that he explicitly went through this step, the, the steps that this article defines. Yeah, his problem isn't that his playlist is corrupt. It's that his playlist has data. It points to songs that don't exist. I, I, I understand. The, the, and rebuilding the, the playlist isn't going to change that. Well, the article is titled how to recreate your iTunes library and playlists. I'm thinking the part of this, that talks about how to create your li- recreate your library may be helpful. All right. Which, which, uh, which article is that? 1451 HT 1451. <clears throat> it's a good general article about problems with your iTunes library. I think. Yeah, no, that's just going to rebuild. It's not going to rebuild. It's going to rebuild the iTunes library file. But that does not rebuild based on the media you have. It it it's essentially does what I talked about that I had to do where my my uh, library file got corrupted. But but it doesn't it doesn't pull out anything. It just rebuilds it from the XML file. All right, but it has other tips in it. So it, it's a, again, I'll say it's a good general article. 
Like it also has a tips a little farther down, which may apply to this. You're missing music or other media files. And then it has a few steps about that. So. Right. I think he's been through all that. I mean, that's sort of what he, what he went through. Um, I I know this, this, I know this support article. Well, this is the one I lived in when I was trying to fix all my problems. But, right. uh, Just but it is it is it is helpful to to get to that point. But I don't think it's going to help this guy. But it is a helpful right. article to to uh, well, that's, to that's reference. Yeah, <laughs> right. No, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I yeah, I think uh, yeah. We, at some point, because I, I I got stuck with this too. Mine mine got into a point where it thought that the tracks that I had locally did not match what was on iTunes match. So it wanted to download duplicates of everything. And finally I did a similar thing. I built smart playlists and just let it redownload everything. I deleted all the stuff that it thought it had dupes of, um, because it was just the easiest thing. And I had, I had already updated everything with iTunes match stuff anyway. So it, other than the bandwidth and the time that it took to redownload everything, which was a couple of hours, um, it, you know, it did. It, it and actually what's the latest now that we're talking about this, because I would say in general, uh, when I've had problems and it's been very infrequent, I mean, uh, you know, I have a single, uh, well, multiple iDevices, but a single library and I manually bring stuff over to them and, and yep. seems to, you know, keep track of it pretty well. Um, but there are situations where you got to nuke either one or the other in order to get things working right. But yes. when I was thinking of that and yeah. just the image of a mushroom cloud and nuking things, which, which is, sometimes you got to start from scratch. <laughs> but um, no, what I was thinking is that there are, now what's, what do the cool kids use these days to retrieve music? Because I'm thinking this is somewhat of a, a useful tangent here and that there sure. are programs that let you pull the music. Uh, typically, you can't just mount your your iPod, iPod or iPhone and just pull the music off of it. You, you got to go through some gyrations here. And I, I still like Sanuti for that from Fading That's Red. That's the one. Yeah. Which is I, iTunes spelled backwards, I think. It so, is iTunes spelled backwards. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's still one that, that, uh, because every now and then I think there's a back and forth. Apple changes a little something and then they change a little something. But that in, in general, I think. So if you're at a point where, yeah, maybe your, your library is totally hosed, but you still have the, the you know, an iDevice that's still working, that may be a direction you want to take. The, the, it yeah. could be painful. You may have to rebuild some things manually. But, uh, I, I've had to resort to that once where I think, yeah, the, the computer was totally shot, but I had a iPod. <laughs> that had all the music on it i think it was still one of the one of the rotational drive ones yeah no that's helpful i actually got i had the opportunity to sit down with Britt tarvin uh one of the uh, the co-founder of of fading red which is the company that makes sanuti and uh she's very interesting in in fact uh john martellaro transcribed and wrote that interview up so i will put that in the uh i put that in the show notes so you can get that interview yeah yeah it's good stuff all right. Um, are we good with that one? We have we have other iTunes questions. We're certainly not leaving iTunes behind <laughs> anytime. Well, you know, such a mess. It is. All right. Well, let's let's go to Dan here. Dan. Um, well, Dan asked a question that has been asked many times. Dan says, I have multiple Macs at home. Don't we all or many of us do anyway. Uh, and I would like to find the best way to share a single iTunes library between them. I want to be able to do all or most of the things I can do with uh, currently with my one Mac setup, genius playlists and mixes, iTunes, DJ, etc. 
And ideally, I'd like to be able to share things like song ratings, play counts, and podcast audiobook position between all of my computers. The options I see are home sharing, uh, using a file server to share my media files and have each computer manage its own library, uh, or share the library file between the Macs as well, uh, or use iTunes Match. Here are my biggest problems with each of the above. With home sharing, I can't use my favorite feature, iTunes Genius. With file sharing, uh, with independent libraries, obviously this would be a pain to manage. Uh, if, uh, if I shared the whole library, this sounds pretty dangerous, particularly if accessed by two machines at once and or different versions of iTunes. And it would be a drain on performance. And iTunes Match, I'm not sure if this might accomplish everything I want as I've never used it. This is obviously the most quote-unquote expensive option, although it's only 25 a year. But I guess it would give me the added benefit of always having my full library accessible on my iPhone or even my MacBook Air when I'm traveling outside my network. Does iTunes Match sync all the metadata, including playback position for podcasts? Is there a free trial of iTunes Match available? Uh... Okay, so, and he goes on and asks some other questions. The, the thing is, as long as this podcast has existed, and yay, even longer than that, um, this has been the holy grail of questions that comes in. And the reality is, there, there is one piece of software, which is called SuperSync at SuperSync.com, uh, that has attempted to solve this problem, but even that, um, it's not perfect. And the reason it's not perfect is because it, the only perfect solution is going to come from Apple. And it's if Apple really, you know, takes this and says, yeah, look, anybody at home should be able to just have one music library. It, it's crazy that we can't do this, but we can't do it, you know? So, uh, and, and hopefully someday Apple will do this, but, um, but you know, super sync is super sync gets us close. Um, as far as iTunes match, um, it will share, uh, uh, play last play time, uh, stuff back and forth. So, so metadata does bounce back and forth. I played a file on my iPad and, and it immediately showed as played on, on, uh, on iTunes. So, you know, that, that part of it works, but that's not exactly what you're looking for. It would no, be I think nice. It's clear what you need. You can do it now. So what you do is basically you 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 get a big whopping iTunes library file, right? Yep. And you basically make a copy of it. Yeah. And you bring it to all the machines that you'd like to play content from, and, and there you go. Maybe do a back end, uh, you know, uh, file synchronization thing or something. Easy, wasteful, but uh. Well, and the problem is you can't have iTunes running on multiple computers then, right? Because if you're if you're sharing the library file, it really you know, you only get one. It is not a file that is meant to be have changes merged into it. It's one file. Oh, no. What I'm thinking is is replicating the, the entire iTunes library at each machine and have each having their own copy of iTunes. Right. But You're still with this. Yeah. But then you can't sync playlists back and forth or anything like that. Right. If If you and I I mean, we could if we agreed to never run iTunes on more than one computer at a time. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, it, it, yeah, but I, I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are some other solutions. You know, I, I'm going to I'm going to jump ahead here, John, uh, because because I've been playing with a device. I, I mentioned that I was going to uh, muck around a bit with uh, with other network attached storage devices. Muck, 
muck you did i muck i have muck i still am uh and i'm and and instead of kind of doing them all and then and then telling you about my feelings on them in general uh i figure i'll just talk about each one as i as i gain familiarity with it so for the last several weeks i've been uh playing with using really integrating with a synology disk station unit uh it's the ds412 plus which is a four bay unit now i am going to invariably i'm as i talk about this uh, so i'll just state it up front i'm going to compare this thing to the the drobo fs because that's really the uh, the other network attached storage device that uh that I've used. Um, in some ways they are comparable products in other ways. They're really not comparable at all. Um, the, the, they both share the ability in their own way to have, allow you to have different sized drives in there and and add and remove drives to expand the the size of the the, the data store at will, uh, and so that's that's a big deal because normally with with network attached storage, especially RAID storage, where you're taking multiple drives and turning it into one big logical uh, volume that you address as one, you have to have in in the past anyway, and with traditional RAID, you need disks of exactly the same size. The Drobo obviously solved that a long time ago. Um, and, and Synology has done the same thing. They, they both do it differently. Synology is actually, a, it, it's a, it's a much geekier product in that you have far more visibility into what's going on with it and how to manage it. When you put a disc in, it doesn't just automatically add it to the volume. You have to go in and tell it, yeah, add this. And when you set it up, you can set it up in traditional raid where you do need things of, of the same size. Or you can put it into what what's called SHR, which is Synology Hybrid RAID, which allows you to do essentially what we're all used to on the Drobo, but with a little more uh, control. If you don't want to think about that, then, you know, perhaps the Drobo is the right move. But for those of us that are geeks, uh, the, the Synology certainly works better. I, I also want to say about about the Drobo, it's going to sound like I'm poo-pooing the Drobo here, Uh I've had a lot of problems. We all have had a lot of problems with the FS, which is the network attached version of the, the Drobo kind of the consumer network attached version. It's slow. Um, really that's the big problem. It, it, it's, it's slow and sluggish. Uh, having gone through that though, I've gone back and have started using my direct connect Drobo, which is really, really fast. So it's clear that the big problem that's slowing the Drobo down is their networking software, not their hardware. Uh, so I've really, as far as direct connect stuff goes, I really, really do like the, the Drobo stuff. Um, but for the network stuff, there's, there's almost no comparison, um, unless you want total ease of use without thinking about anything and you're willing to sacrifice speed for that. So now let's, let's talk about this, uh, this disk station, John, it, it's a cool little unit. Um, you can see pictures of it, so I'm not going to bother describing it, but as I said, it's got four four discs on this one. You can get them with two discs units. You can get them with five disc units. You can get them with 16 discs. I think you know, Synology sells a million different products and it's so it's good. There's no separate app that's required to manage it. John, like, you know, on, on the Drobo, you, you install a separate app on each Mac that you want to have managed this thing with Synology. You just launch a web page and you can do all kinds of things with it. Um, 
there are so many apps available for this thing. It's ridiculous. It comes with a lot of built in stuff. One of the apps and kind of the reason I, I jumped into this here, John, one of the apps is called audio station. You can put your music library out there uh, on this thing and then point audio station at it and say, that's where my music library is in this folder. And then it will index it and build its own iTunes style thing. And you can interface with it from the web, either locally or across the WAN. So across the internet and they've got an iOS app for audio station and, uh, and you do the same thing. You can access it locally or across the internet and you can build your own playlists. And here's the, here's the thing where this starts to get very interesting, John, for this last discussion, you and I could access the same music library with different logins. You could have your own playlists. I could have my own playlists and then we can have shared playlists that anybody that logs into this particular unit can share. So that's where, you know, it's not iTunes, but I've been listening to this in my car a lot and I've found that, you know, I, I like it even better than iTunes match because it is actually streaming to my phone. So I don't have to wait for it to download if I don't have the song locally and it will cache songs on it and you can set that. So it's that, that part's really, really cool. Um, it's got an iTunes server, so it can also act like an iTunes library and your, your iTunes installation. See it as a shared library locally. It's got a media server, which will do DLNA, which is a standard for, um, for uh, serving video. So if you've got a Blu-ray player, chances are it, it might, if it's a network attached Blu-ray player, it might support DLNA. So it might just be able to play any movies that you just store on this thing. You can do photos. If you're a Plex user, you can install and this now we're getting into some third party software that's available, although Plex is, is it's third party, but it's it's available from the built in repositories. You can go find other repositories, John, and install all kinds of different apps on this thing. One thing that I found was Crash Plan. You know, the online you use Crash Plan, right, John? Yes. So. I was able to set this thing up as a crash plan client. It's a little wonky. Um, you know, again, it, you can get very geeky with this thing. All the stuff that I've explained thus far is, is pretty, uh, pretty easy to do inside their web interface. The crash plan thing is weird because it's headless. So you have to actually control it with your max version of crash plan. But I was able to go into this thing and say, uh, back up my music library to the cloud. And then the disk station does it all by itself. So there's no, you know, I don't, my Mac doesn't need to be on for this thing to do its backups. It just happens automatically. And it is, it, you know, I have a family plan with crash plan, so I have multiple computers on it and the disk station just appears as one of my five, you know, registerable computers. And it's really cool. And I also set it up, you know, with crash plan, you can back up to friends machines or whatever. So I set this one up as a machine that I think you even sent me a request to, to link up. So you're actually linked up to backup directly to my disk station. No Macs need to be on. It's just straight to the disk station. Awesome. I know. And, uh, you know, you and I are Dropbox users, right? And we share stuff with Dropbox. But one of the things that is certainly a potential issue, we haven't had any problems with it, but a potential issue with Dropbox is that the data is being stored, of course, on your computer and my computer. We have a folder that's shared between us, but it's also being stored on Dropbox's computers, wherever those are. And with whatever security they deem appropriate enough. But let's say we're using we're, we're you know, we want to do this with some sensitive data that we really can't store in 
someone else's computers that we don't know about. Well, Synology has created this thing called Cloud Station, which is still technically in beta. It's very, very new. Uh, but John, we've, we've played with it a little bit and it works just like Dropbox, but the cloud is on the disk disk station that's sitting in my office. So it lives on your computer, on my computer and on the disk station and that's it. And, and it transfers back and forth and you, you played with it over the internet. So I've been losing it, using it locally here. How did it work for you over the internet, John? It was comparable to uh, both the user experience and the speed, I would say, is comparable to uh, what I get with Dropbox That's even awesome. with my wonky uh, bandwidth here. Right. So it lets you install. So uh, you sent me, you told me where to get the app. You run the app. And then uh, if somebody wants to share part of their device with you, then you have to uh, basically provide them with a login and a password, which you did for me. Mm-hmm. And then I get a personal area. Uh, just like Dropbox, so that I get a personal area on whatever is in the cloud, which in your case happens to be something that's physically at your house right. or office, right? Rather than you know, but other than that, functionally it's the same. And then I, I didn't notice this at first, or, or you didn't put in the uh, the invite immediately, or I just kind of stumbled across it. But then I noticed, oh, if I go to the settings, well, I'm sharing my personal space, but then oh, look, someone invited me to something called. Um, called an MGG DS cloud. And I'm like, oh, cool. And that, of course, is something that both you and I can see. So whereas the one space there, I guess the initial space there, that's one that normally only I can see or or no. Right. That's that, that's right. Now, to be fair, as the administrator of the uh, of the, the disk station, my guess is that I could see whatever you have in your personal cloud. Okay. But normally it uh, normally it should uh, the the intent, I think, is to set aside space for individuals. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can do a share thing. So so this is something where you said, oh, okay, well, we're both a a member of this Mm -hmm. folder. Okay, just like Dropbox, same thing that we do for Mac together or anything we've doing forever is we both see the contents of that folder. Okay, it's cool. And, you know, uh, one big thing. Uh, to get back to the comparison with the Drobo, you know, one thing that you and I have had problems with, with the FS again, that's, this is the network connected Drobo. We've had trouble with not the, not the direct connect units. Um, But one thing we've had trouble with is logging into it and getting directory listings out of it. It, It's very, very slow. In fact, sometimes you have trouble getting it to log in. And, and uh, I had that one directory of my, you know, 3000 folders of music that would take four minutes to load. And then four minutes for each subfolder. This one loads that, directory in about 30 to 40 seconds and then after that browsing is instantaneous mounting of drives is instantaneous on this there is no lag time uh and i'm doing it over afp which is apple's you know uh, uh, standard file sharing protocol it really i've been very very impressed by this thing and uh and i tried of course i you know put drives in it and then i let it get all synced up and then i yanked the drive out to see what would happen and uh, and it, it, you know, it dealt with it fine. It, it, it threw an error message. It beeped when I pulled the drive out. And then it also um, I had it configured to send me an email. So it did. And I had to log in and tell it, OK, yeah, go and repair the drive. Or I could put a new drive in and say repair using this other drive so that when you're done, you've expanded or, you know, replaced or whatever. But I lost no data in the process and it was all hot swappable and all of that good stuff. Oh, 
And speaking of that, you know, I've got this thing plugged into a UPS unit, John, you know, battery backup thing. Uh-huh. Some UPSs have USB connections that you can do to them so that they can tell your computer that they're on battery power and maybe it's time to shut down safely before we run out of juice. Oh, nice. This thing's got that. So uh, I can, I can, I can do that. No problem. It's got, it's actually got three USB ports on it, a USB two and two USB three ports, and you can mount other drives from it. So what I'm thinking of doing is actually taking my direct connect robo and attaching it to this thing and, uh, and just letting it manage, you know, all the, all the data that way. So it's pretty cool. It's good. It's, it's, it's a cool thing. There's lots of other stuff too, but I think that's, that's a good kind of overview of, of what Synology stuff does. I will say this. Um, you will, if you go to Synology's website, you'll see tons and tons of options. And you'll see, you know, many, many four bay raid units and then many, many five bay raid units. There's two differences, two things you want to look for with these. Number one is what kind of discs they take. Some only take SSDs or two and a half inch discs. Some take, you know, kind of all size discs. And then the other thing is CPU and RAM. And that actually matters here. If you want to start doing things like playing videos, you know, that it, that the unit is going to do transcoding on like that DLNA server I mentioned um, I've got one set up where my, my Sony Blu-ray player will only play like one type of, of movie stream to it. So this thing's got to, got to transcode this stuff on the fly. And, uh, and that the CPU in there obviously is what's doing the work. So this one has a dual core CPU and, and that sort of, sort of thing matters. It's even got two ethernet ports. And I think if you went, if you were willing to go through the trouble you could actually set it up as its own router. You could like install a DHCP server and go through all that, but it's not, it's not an intended use case, but you know, if you want to get geeky, it's all right there. Fun stuff. And I'm going to be checking out some other, other things, but this, this one really impressed me. It sort of opened my eyes to what a NAS unit really could do. Cause it's just so, uh, you know, there's so much stuff. You can put a Minecraft server on the thing. If you're in, if you're so mm-hmm. inclined. Yeah. Mm-hmm which my son will probably be excited about when he gets home from camp. So any other questions on this thing, John? Now you mentioned, uh, so it sounds like the, uh, the setup is a bit more sophisticated because on the FS and actually to me, this is a selling point. So I'm with you in that the, the, uh, the wake from sleep is the only thing that I still have issues with the throughput. I'm okay with on this thing for, for what I use it for, which is either serving media files, which is streams fast enough so I can, you know, stream them or just, archiving big whopping files i mean right now this thing you know has available like four terabytes the, the only level of granularity they offer on the drobo and and i think uh, i'm almost certain that the synology offers something different so here it says oh do you want single disk or dual disk redundancy which means right do you want me to spread the data i guess between two drives or three drives or however many but uh by choosing, I think, dual drive redundancy on this thing, you, you reduce the amount of available space, which uh, that, that's kind of how I, RAID works. I've messed um, with that on the Drobo, and, and you can do that on the Synology, but here's the big difference. With the Drobo space allowing, you can flip-flop back and forth between single and dual pretty much at any time. It will take time to convert it from one to the other, but there's no loss of data. There's, you just flip the switch and go. On the Synology, you decide up front which RAID you're going to use. Are you going to use one of the standard RAIDs, you know, RAID 1, RAID 5, RAID 10, RAID 0, uh, I believe. Or are you going to use Synology Hybrid RAID? And then when you do that, you pick 
single disc or dual disc redundancy and you are locked in until you're willing to, you know, erase everything and start from scratch. But, uh, but you can do it. You just sort of have to, like you said, it, it's, it's, um, it requires a little more user decisions to be made at setup time. So, you know, geeks like me, I actually kind of like, you know, I kind of appreciated that. So it's a cool thing. Yeah. I was doing some, uh, repair work over the last few days here. Can I tell them about the, can I tell them about the second sponsor and then, and then you tell us about your uh, repair work here, John? (laughs) It's very brief, but yes, the second sponsor. Absolutely. Is Apollon. Apollon Apollon.com is where you can find out about everything they do. And, uh, and the thing we're talking about here tonight is really fun. And I've actually really, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, it's funny, but I've gotten totally hooked on this thing. It's called pimp your screen. It's an app for, uh, for iOS. It will work on your iPod touch, your iPhone, your iPad. It's one app. It's 99 cents. Just go buy it. Uh, what it does is it comes with a ton of different backgrounds that you can use. But the cool thing is these backgrounds are built to sort of sit and highlight all of your app icons. So, you know, if you think about it, all your app icons are always in the same place. And so they've got all these backgrounds built that make it look like, you know, your apps are on shelves or they've got like little, you know, boxes around them. And it really it's it's really cool. Um, and there's tons of them that you can go through. You can customize. You can do you can overlay it onto your own picture. You can, you know, pick and choose and mix and match all kinds of different stuff. And then they've got. A, uh, a a lock screen maker as well. And they've got some built in kind of pre-built lock screens, but you can also put your own stuff out there again, your own picture, but then you can put a calendar right there on your lock screen. Uh, and it's just a picture. So you'd have to make a new one each month, but that's kind of fun. You know, it's not really a big deal. So uh, it takes, it takes no time in the apps right there and they're constantly updating things with it. It's really, really cool. Very, very happy that we have them on board as a sponsor. And uh it's Apollon.com, but you can find the app in the uh, in the app store. It's called Pimp Your Screen for iOS. So that's that. So you, John, you said you were. Uh, so thank you, Apollon. Apollon.com. You had you had some stuff there, John. Oh, I was doing some repair work. Oh, yeah, on my on my car. Oh, on your car. I thought you. I thought this was your computer. Is everything okay? Oh no, my computer's fine. Oh good. Uh, yeah. No, it's a. Uh, <laughs> Uh, put in uh, new headlights uh, and new headlight lenses. You know how they get? Um, oh, dude, that's just so expensive. They're way more expensive than they should be. Well, no, the, this was actually affordable. I think the oh, the, uh, the, uh, the headlight units themselves that are plastic and not glass, which I think would have solved the problem. But apparently some plastics after so many years get all foggy and scratchy and stuff like that. Dude, it, it was like night and day. After put, and I put in some new headlight bulbs too. That's kind of uh, interesting. But uh, yeah, you know, some bolts after having not been turned for all these years, you know, you made you know, <laughs> some E forty. Anyways, and 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 I got some other new things for the car. I'm I'm uh, I'm going to keep it going forever. So I have something. Uh, so so moving on here in the agenda, I think yeah, I have something yeah. from from Irving here. Take it. See, I'm prepared. Take it. I thought I'd shock you. That's awesome. So, Irving writes, and, and I don't know if I have an answer here, but I have a strategy for solving the problem here, Dave. And uh, That's know, what we're after. Not. Yep. So uh, here's what we got. I've just installed OS 10.8. Is that new? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, 
into a quad-core Intel Xeon followed by Adobe CS6, Creative Suite 6, which includes Adobe Acrobat 10 Pro. When I download a PDF file with Safari and try to print it with the printer icon at the bottom of the screen, I get a new Acrobat 10 Pro print screen and the document prints correctly. The screen also indicates that the file is four pages in size. See first two screen chapters below. However, if after opening the PDF file with Safari, I then use command P, I get the older printer command screen and a black preview. The screen also incorrectly identifies the file as having only one page, and Safari immediately prints one blank page. A black page. Yeah, Not what I wanted. Using Firefox, this issue doesn't arise since Firefox immediately asks to open the file with Acrobat Pro 10 or save file. This indicates to me the command P command in Safari is using preview or some other utility to open the PDF file is unable to correctly interpret the PDF file. Interestingly, if I do open the PDF file with preview, it correctly renders the file. It also prints correctly. That's the part that got me. I thought I knew what was happening until the yeah. last part. Yeah. So the only combination is opening a PDF file with Safari and trying to print it with Command P. Any suggestions or should I just wait for Apple to fix the bug? I don't know if this is a bug, Dave, but I'm, I'm going to offer you at least a place to start with a problem like this, which involves a browser interpreting a document that, that it's opening. And how do browsers handle that? I'm going to tell you how you can tell this. So you're going to have, uh, for the most part, there are plugins that handle this. And this is where you can see the plugins, uh, both from Safari, and that's if you go to Safari and the help menu, and then install the plugins. We'll show you all the plugins that are in there to handle all different sorts of files. What's supposed to happen is when a browser like Safari or any browser sees a document that identifies itself with a certain MIME type, it's usually just a text code, like uh, application slash PDF or something like that. Yep. <laughs> in the case of a PDF file, then the plugin will say, "Up, oh, it's my job to do something here." So rather than letting the browser display it, I'm going to take over and I'm going to either talk to another program or maybe I'll take care of it myself if the plugin has has enough uh, juice. And that's how it works. Now, in the case of a PDF file, I think what's happening here, so this was the suggestion I offered. All right, so here's how you can see the plugins, and you're probably going to see a couple of them in there, and I'm almost sure because it sounds like uh, the Adobe software has taken over, and, and I saw a couple, one called Adobe Acrobat NP API plugin version 10.1.3. Uh-huh. And then I saw another one that was similar, Adobe... I'm sorry. So so I just saw that one when I went to installed plugins. Now, here was the part that was kind of interesting. So, of course, these plugins live somewhere in the file system. Where do they live, you're asking? And I'm going to tell you in slash library slash internet plugins, or at least that's one place, or I think the place. There may be maybe uh, another one of those in the user directory. I don't think I found one. But I had two plugins in there, Adobe PDF Viewer dot plugin and Adobe PDF Viewer NPAPI dot plugin. So I guess my suggestion in general is, you know, don't throw them away, but I'm, I'm wondering if you have the wrong combination of plugins in your plugin folder, if that could cause this sort of behavior. Yeah, def- I, I would say definitely, uh, you know, and, and so on why? your end, you're seeing an Adobe plugin. I, I, I ensure that I don't let that one get installed. Um, okay. Because, because, I've seen it cause issues with exactly what uh, what Irving is describing here, where it, you know, it mucks with things. So I get the Adobe plugin out. I let which then defaults it back to to WebKit. So which is which is preview. Yeah. 
All right. So I think maybe one way to solve this problem. So maybe pulling those, whatever uh, yeah, you may have to. You got you know, to cross reference a little bit. Yeah. Well, you got to put on your propeller beanie here and look in your plugins folder and see what, if any, well, first look at your, um, look at the installed plugins list from Safari and see what, if any plugins are installed to handle PDFs. And you're probably going to see one or more Adobe ones. And then also look in the internet plugins folder and try to make sense of that. My guess is that you have something that's redundant and maybe in one case, when you try to print, well, no, I'm going to take that back. I mean, I don't know why the printing's not working. That should always work. Though, though maybe it is a plugin that's kind of getting in the way with that because I mean, printing from Safari that, that, that kind of bothered me. That that part, Dave. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but the part where you just bring up the normal print dialog and it prints a blank page or a black page, and it's the so it's the wrong number of pages and it's not the right content. It's like, huh? How could that possibly happen? Well, it depends. I mean, if it's if it's printing a PDF, in theory, that shouldn't happen. But if it's printing a web page, web pages can define different style sheets for print versus screen. Mm-hmm. And so that if that if that happens, then you're sort of forced into it, you know, printing the Web page as uh, as as whatever the the Web page author has defined with the with the style sheet. However, and this is a slight tangent, but Snaps Pro 10 and I believe Skitch will do this, too, uh, will let you print an entire Web page as one as an as a PDF a one page PDF, even if that web page goes, you know, six screenfuls for you, uh, it will save it as one big, long PDF. And I'm, I'm pre- I know snaps pro 10 does it. I'm almost certain that sketch does it as well. Sketch is sketch is actually free. So I'll throw that out there. I know that was sort of a tangent, but that's what we do. That's, Good. Yeah. That's what I got. All right. Cool. I, I got to admit, I I will install the Adobe plugins, and uh, I've I've had too many problems with third party things like Preview and and all that trying to interpret PDFs and them not working. But Preview is not a third party thing. Adobe Adobe's plugin is. Preview is is local. Well, no, I'm talking in general dealing with PDFs. Yeah, I've, I've had some. Like as of late, I just had one here. <laughs> um. Nah, I shouldn't go into detail here. Good. <laughs> well, no, it basically was a third party that sent me a document. So you okay. you can include something in a document, like say you're affirming that some charges on your credit card are not correct. Your bank may send you a PDF file. So yes, yeah, so this is what happened. Sure. <laughs> so there are mysterious charges. What my bank did is actually sent me a thing saying, okay, well, do you attest to the fact that these charges were not made by you? And I'm like, yes, of course. And it's a PDF file. And what happens is you have to click on a big button in there saying, I electronically affirm that this is me and, and, and all of that. The thing sure. is, when I took that PDF file and tried to load it into preview, whatever this functionality is, which is something kind of programmatic, did not work. Right. That That's very much a you need Acrobat to do this function. Yeah. yeah. Once I brought it into the Acrobat yeah. Reader, I guess Acrobat Reader 10, which I download and, and I have on my my, uh, my MacBook on, on, with uh, the latest OS, it, it worked fine. The button showed up. I clicked it and it actually came up and said, up, oh, you know, I'm communicating with the mothership. And I got like an email immediately saying, yeah. okay, yeah, we received the thing saying that it, you didn't do this. <laughs> the thing is, it's the second time <laughs> it's happened with the same company. It's like, oh, guys, come on. Probably what's we happening think- is you're using your card um, 
we, we've been through this a lot. We've had we've had specific employees that have had their cards compromised regularly. And we found that yeah. it's, you know, someone's using that same card at the same gas station, you know, over and over again or whatever. And, and it, you know, if you look that if it's happening over and over again to you, you are likely doing something where where someone is regularly compromising your card. Well, uh, no, this this was different. But okay. Between the two cards that I've had, so I've had pretty much two major let, cards. Let, go, go quickly. We've we've tangented a lot, and we've got questions, and we're at the hour mark, and I, I don't I want to. I don't make think sure that's it. Through stuff. Okay, right. No, it's I don't fine. think that's it. That's I'll fine. tell tell people later. But it's a, yeah. yeah. It, it was just yeah a thing where only the PDF reader could do it. Right. Moving. Moving on. There we go. What's uh, next? Karsten has uh, Karsten, who shared some tips with us earlier, has uh, has I think three questions, maybe four, but they're quick. He says, number one, uh, I'm an IT director uh, at a large office. My techs work on both Windows and Macs. My question is related to cloning. On Windows, I am used to seeing that my techs use Acronis, uh, which is a piece of software that lets me lets me take an image of a Windows PC, save the image as an image file out to a network storage device this image file is then bootable and people can restore from it how can i do that with a mac well you can uh net boot on the mac will let you boot your mac from an image that is stored on the network uh you need to set your mac up as a net boot server and uh and it, it, it there's actually quite a few steps to go through to do that so we will put a uh, a link in the show notes to instructables.com that uh, that talks just about that um, that process. It's it's actually not. It's a lot of steps, but it's really not that bad. Uh, and it if, if you're if you're the type of person that wants to do this, chances are these steps are not going to be all that difficult for you to uh, to run through. So netboot server. Next question: If we clone an internal drive to an external drive, and the main Mac OS then later crashes, how do I get the clone back? to the internal drive. I assume I boot from the Mac from the extra. I boot the Mac from the external drive, open super duper or carbon copy cloner, and then clone the drive back to the main hard drive. Is that the best method? That's an okay method, but you're doing it from the drive that you're booted from, which again, it's okay, but you can boot from uh, your install DVD or even your recovery partition and launch disk utility and do a clone back that way. Uh, using the restore tab uh, when you when you go into disk utility. So that's that's another way. That's how I always do it. And that way I'm not booted from it. I'm not pulling new data down while it's trying to do this clone. I know that it's just going to go. So that's that's how I do that. You got anything on these first two, John? <laughs> I, I, I meant to ask you about the netboot one, but uh, so. Yeah, if, no, for, we for talked about that before. Two. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Now it's relevant. I was ahead of my time. I know it's good stuff. Uh, all right. And, uh, the third question we'll, we'll jump thing, jump the things here. He says, uh, there are a few things I like about windows better. Yeah. Only a few, but I do like, uh, one thing when I type in word, the app shows a misspelling. I can use the arrow keys to go back to the red line under the word, press the menu key, pick the right spelling and move on without taking my fingers off the keyboard. When I type on the Mac, I tend to type so fast that I leave a trail of misspelled words behind me. I know slow down is one answer. However, since I leave this trail, I do not know how I can go back to autocorrect the words without using the mouse or the touchpad. How do I do it? And for that, I turn to a tip that I was actually going to share from our 
esteemed editor and my co-founder over at Mac Observer, Brian Chaffin, command semicolon will go through your document and find all of you one by one hit all of your misspelled words. It is built into the OS. Mm. I know it, you know, he, we were talking about something. He's like, why don't you do you just command semicolon? Like, what are you talking about? What does that do? He's like, Oh, I couldn't live without it. Oh, that's awesome. So that's that. Good stuff, right? We like command semicolon. <laughs> All right. I, I don't make these <laughs> errors. So, <laughs> all right, let's jump. Um, let, let's, let's try and, uh, we've just, we've got time for a couple more. Let's do, uh, let's do Jim. I think oh. that's, I think that's a, it's a good sort of general purpose one. Jim writes, I'm about to install mountain lion on my 27 inch iMac. I'm considering buying an external SSD drive, which I could hook up by FireWire 800 and install the new OS on the SSD. Do you think I would notice a major improvement as opposed to just installing it on the internal hard drive? Do you think the advantages would outweigh the problem of having to run another external drive? I'm already running a USB drive for Time Machine and Carbon Copy Cloner. So, and this, I'm sure we're going to get into a religious battle here, John, which is, which is sort of why I picked this one. Um, there are two speed benefits to the, to an SSD drive. One is the, the raw throughput, right? And, uh, and that you probably will max out with FireWire 800 because most SSDs can go faster than FireWire 800. Um, and, and, and if your internal bus is SATA three gigabit, you know, 800 goes 800 megabits a second. SATA goes 3000 or 6,000. And most SSDs sit at uh, what about the the twelve hundred mark? And I'm doing the math because they're all rated differently, but I think that's that's you know that's a reasonable assumption. So, as far as maximum transfer rate, no, you won't see it on the FireWire drive. But the, the kind of the thing that most general users attribute to the speed of SSD has nothing to do with the throughput. It has to do with the seek time or the latency uh, on your hard drive. The heads need to move and the drive needs to spin to get to the point where it can read the data that you want. And when you stack up a lot of read operations, which you do when you're reading lots of different files, that can actually take a significant amount of time. With the SSD, there is no seek time per se. It's certainly much, much less. There is seek time, but it's way, way less orders of magnitude less than it would be on a mechanical drive. And that's actually what makes the SSD, quote unquote, feel so much faster on things like booting and launching apps and just navigating around. And you'll see that on firewire or even USB. So really it's what's the easiest thing for you logistically. And if it's all equal, put it inside because then you do get all the benefits and it's portable, but otherwise do it on your external and you're fine. That's my feeling. John. But, you know, I mean, you brought it up before here. You know, it's not going to be a religious battle because it's all facts, Dave. We're all talking facts here. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, there, there, there's no feelings or there, there's no uncertainties here. <laughs> no, it's all the numbers. I, I would say, though, so an SSD, you're not going to get, it's not going to be as nice as on an internal bus. So, the, the you know, of course, the internal bus, uh, any sort of SATA, you're talking gigabits per second. Uh, FireWire 800 is megabit, you know, hundreds of megabits per second. So it's not going to be the same experience. I would say FireWire, or even better now, Thunderbolt uh, would would be your uh, fastest options, or USB 3. The faster, the better. 
you know, USB three. I mean, thank goodness now Apple put it on their their machines. FireWire eight hundred, I would say, is the second pick. Anything below that, uh, I I think it's it's more noticeable. Though, though it depends. You know, today actually, when I was doing some research for a question, I connected a external drive to my MacBook Pro that had both FireWire eight hundred, which I think there's something wrong with it because I was getting beach balls until I would see the light on the drive uh, turn off and on again. It was like cycling the bus or something, and I was like, oh man. But I plugged in the FireWire 400 and that worked fine. Though it was slower, but it was noticeable or on USB. So that's all I got to say. It's a, an SSD is good. Uh, anything external short of Thunderbolt, which has the potential to go screaming faster. Or, or the, the whole key here is that it can go faster, at least as fast, if not faster, than the rate that the data goes from the drive to whatever interface it, it first runs into. Right, right. Yeah, just make sure if you're doing Thunderbolt that it's Thunderbolt to eSATA or Thunderbolt to, I guess that would be it. Um, you know, if going mm-hmm. Thunderbolt to FireWire is going to be just as fast as doing FireWire. There, there's no speed yeah. benefit by using Thunderbolt in that equation. So you just got to you got to make sure that that the, the, the device to which you are connecting via Thunderbolt has the interface in it. Mm-hmm. Really, what Thunderbolt does is it just moves the the interface from being inside your Mac to being elsewhere. It just, it's an, it's like an expansion bay. So Thunderbolt in and of itself is not the connection mechanism. You just got to make sure you, you know what the interface to the drive is. Okay. All right. Um, you want to do, uh, is, is Kevin something that, that, uh, makes sense to do? No, not yet. Okay. All right, fine. Uh, then let's do, I think Scott's is going to be a good one with uh, iCloud and all sorts of stuff. He has a couple of different questions. We will see. He says, first, uh, let's see. I have two Wi-Fi networks in my home. One supplies me a local IP address, uh, and I'm here in Bogota. Uh, And the other is a Buffalo router, which supplies me a U.S. IP address that I connect the router with a VPN to get this IP address. I usually link all of my devices to the U.S. router. This makes using Netflix and Hulu possible. The setup is great for most TV shows that I want to see. However, there are a few which aren't available anywhere except BitTorrent. For these, I do not want to use the U.S. IP because while transmission is running, my IP can be checked by our friendly overlords. Uh, I was looking for a way to have transmission hide me in some way while I was using the U.S. IP address, but was not able to figure out a way to do it. That's right. So my next thought was just to switch which network I am using when I use transmission. This works fine, except I need to do this manually. And I used to have a nice automated flow of bits. This leads me to my question. I want to create a script or automator utility or something that would change my Wi-Fi network the Mac is using and then start the downloads. The next part is the hard part. When transmission is done with the downloads, it needs to quit and switch my Wi-Fi back to normal. I want to automate this so it can run at 1 a.m. Of course, if you have other ideas, I'm all ears. Okay, so on this one, first, I think it's cool that you're using a separate router to do the VPN so you don't have to do it from each of your devices. That's that's actually really cool. And then speaks to the geek in me as to your automated transmission question. I mean, really, it's sort of a general question of how to switch networks. Um, I'm wondering if you're better off connecting via Ethernet to this other router because you can your Mac can actually be connected to multiple networks simultaneously. Um, You can have it connected to a Wi-Fi network and also an ethernet network. And then you can route traffic kind of um, uh, 
you can, you can set things up in a lot of different ways. So I, I would, um, I, I would start by, by, by doing that. Um, it starts to get geeky, but, uh, but that, that might make it easier for you. Cause then you could just turn your Wi-Fi. You could prioritize your Wi-Fi network, which is the, the U S one. And then you could have a script that, that, you know, that just turns your Wi-Fi off uh, at 1am and then turns it on later in the day. And that way your traffic is automatically going to route ethernet or Wi-Fi, depending on which one you go to very geeky, but you know, that's what you're asking. Thoughts on that one, John, before we move on to, uh, yeah, I'm thinking some sort of, uh, uh, my vote would be, uh, yeah, I don't think automator. I mean, you know, I, I like automator, but it just doesn't expose a lot of things don't expose enough functionality. So I would right. guess an Apple script. That's a, that's a strategic uh, is that there may be one already that says, okay, we'll do this, then switch the network, then do this. So it's, I don't think it's specific to Wi-Fi, but I, I I'm almost positive that someone's written something that, uh, cause it sounds like something that, uh, you know, is pretty common. You want to transfer a file and then switch to another network to, you know, escape, you know, big brother <laughs> yeah. and then pretend everything's normal. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, was it Doug's Apple, Apple scripts that that one's yeah. there? I'm sure yeah. they got to have something that's at least a foundation to to build on as far as how you oh, uh, through idea. how you switch networks and up. I'm, I'm sure you know transferring a file is trivial, or, or telling another program that that's Apple script aware that it can do you know can transfer a file or switch a network. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, it would be cool. And somebody's mentioning in the chat room something I was kind of thinking about too. Is there is there a way to do network routing on a per application basis? And I feel like Rubbernet is so close to being able to do this uh, that that perhaps you know that that is this is RubbernetApp.com. You can um, you can see so much about what each app is doing that I feel like you know maybe port based or something, I bet you could force it to route, um, on a, you know, on a, on a, on a, on an app by app basis. That that's where I would start with that. Yeah. It's an interesting one. All right. Moving on to his next question, which I think is his last question. Uh, there are five members of my household and I have used my .Mac email address as my Apple ID and used it exclusively for all iTunes purchases. This bit has been okay until Mountain Lion. With the changes in iCloud for Mountain Lion and what I've read about iOS 6, I can see that I need to start thinking about an Apple ID for each member of my family. I can see how this might work and many problems coming from it as well. I do not want to write the great American novel to you guys with all my questions or concerns. So I was wondering if you could just point me to some articles well, we can we can discuss this here. Um, the first of all, buying all your apps for the family with one ID is brilliant, uh, and I really think it's the best way to go. Uh, unless you you know need to separate for budget reasons or or whatever, it just makes it simpler. If you're all going to share most of the apps or even some of the apps, it's much easier if they're all bought on the same ID. You can update with it. Um, obviously everybody has access to the same account, which means they can all purchase with it. So you've got to sort of manage that on your own, but, uh, but it, this does make kind of the, the sharing of apps easy, but you're right. You do need with iOS, especially with iOS six, but also with mountain lion, you're right. You do need iCloud IDs for each person. The, The good part is that at least for now, iCloud IDs as defined in the iCloud settings on mountain lion and on iOS, even five, uh, are separate f- 
from where you set your iTunes purchase account ID. So maybe what you want to do is make your iTunes purchase account ID separate from all of your other iCloud accounts. And that way, you know, you're not sharing your iCloud password with everybody in your family. It's just this iTunes, um, you know, iTunes purchase account and, and make that completely its own thing. So that's, I would, I, I would definitely, you know, look at, look at that as, as a, as a path to head down. I, I, and as I'm saying this, I'm realizing I'm not even close to that because we've got two IDs that we use for iTunes. And the one that I use is actually the same that I use for iCloud. So it's a actually a big disaster. And I wish I had thought about this years and years ago before I could have even thought about it to change it. But you know, that's how it goes. Thoughts on that, John? No, I, I'm I'm all behind the one ID thing because that's 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 what. Oh, I that's do. right. You're you're not sharing with anybody. Yeah, yeah. That that. that oh, that, I share plenty. I just have one ID. Well, yeah, but you're not sharing with other people. Well, yeah. Right. I mean that that's sure, the issue. I share with people. <laughs> See, you, you do. Yeah, I mean, there's other people that use that use your ID for downloading apps. Oh, no, no, no. That's what I mean. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. Sorry. I know you share in a general sort of, you know, humanitarian way. That's, that's, mm -hmm. that's not, that's not what I meant. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's what Scott meant either. All right. Um, we should pick one more. I want to talk about network speeds with Brent here, John, before we, uh, before we wrap this one up. Sure. All right. Brent, Brent writes, I use Comcast as my ISP and I have a Doxis 3 modem and an older airport extreme pre gigabit Ethernet. I believe this was fast Ethernet 100 base T. Anyway, I also have an older Linksys G router running DDWRT in bridge mode. The idea was to have the airport running at five gigahertz N and the Linksys at 2.4 gigahertz G. My airport extreme is not dual band. Uh, and I was going to run this with two different SSIDs, one for the five gigahertz and one for the 2.4. Today, I received an email from Comcast that they are doubling my speed. I just need to power cycle my modem. I tried a few times and no luck running a speed test from my iMac connected to the five gigahertz. N. I'm still stuck at 25 megabits down, which should now be 50. I called Comcast. They reset my modem. Now I get about 35 megabits down, which is closer, but not quite 50. Meanwhile, I'm now getting the new double speed increase of 10 megabits per second up. Comcast and myself cannot figure out why I can't get my full 50 down. So just now I, try, I decided to try to Ethernet from the airport extreme to my iMac and magically 50 megabits down just like that. So my long drawn out question, why can't I get 50 megabits down via my 5 gigahertz N on my airport extreme Wi-Fi? Is this some limitation of the older airport extreme? Uh, no, I don't think it is. It is also important uh, for what we're about to talk about briefly here that to remember that uh, 802.11n, uh, which is the current uh, 802.11ac is actually the current quote unquote standard, but it's not quite a standard yet. And it's also not available on our Mac. So we're going to talk about N as the latest and greatest that's available to us. N is available over both 5 gigahertz and 2.4 gigahertz. The difference is that over 5 gigahertz, you have, in theory, more bandwidth, but shorter range. So in your situation where you're not seeing the bandwidth that you want over five gigahertz, 
you might be better off running your end network at 2.4 gigahertz because you are going to get longer range. If you're more than really, if you're more than a room away, five gigahertz is doing you no benefit in most cases. So, you know, running in at 2.4 gigahertz may very well be your best bet. Um, but it, but it's just one of those things you've got to experiment with because you're going to have all kinds of factors that, that we can't guess about, you know, things that are interrupting your Wi-Fi, you know, and, and some might interrupt five gigahertz, some might interrupt 2.4. And so you've just got to experiment with both different, uh, channel banks and also different, um, channels within those banks too. But, uh, but if you're getting it direct plugged in, then that means that something is making your Wi-Fi not as fast as it could be because N should go faster than your 50 megabits down. G will not G says it's 54. Really? You're going to get half that. So you're going to get about 25 on your, on your G network. So we won't, you won't get your full 50 down on that. So you still might want to use two different network names, one for your N and one for your G. Thoughts on that, John? You know, I remember when there was a decision, should Apple introduce 802.11 or be one of the first companies? And I believe actually Steve and company decided no. Should, the they, decision, should they introduce what? what? You said it quickly. 802.11a. They have it. I think your, every Mac right now supports 802.11a. They have it, but I don't think they, they highly advertise the fact in that they didn't say, oh, well, we got the next big thing. Right. Because I think there was a general feeling that, that they kind of, I mean, they include it, but they didn't really showcase it. Right. Because I think what it's suffering from is what you pointed out, is that because it's only, uh, or at least 802.11a, because it's only 5 gigahertz. Right. A is uh, 5 gigahertz and 54 megabits only. Right. Right. Uh, my point is that anything at five gigahertz, when compared to something at 2.4, well, I'll take it back a little bit in a moment, but if you compare the two, you will get shorter range eventually if you're talking five versus 2.4. But, but the other thing you said is true is in theory, a five gigahertz signal, a nice, strong, robust five gigahertz signal will be faster than a 2.4. Yeah, so it's kind of so. Yes. So you get one benefit potentially of faster throughput, but the downside of five is uh, it, it falls off a lot quicker uh, as that's, as you as the distance from the base station. That's right. Is the general observation that I've had. So, yep. or maybe get a better antenna. That's another idea. Depending on what you have as your base, I've seen some crazy amplified and just uh, really. You know, people that know how to do antennas. I mean, oh, if you've yeah? got an antenna jack, now I don't... Well, you know, actually, the other day, I did take apart my time capsule, and there is a way to get in there. I mean, actually, you know, it's funny. that the, the antennas in the time capsule are basically wires soldered to circuit boards. Right. Which is really all an antenna really needs to be. But that frequency, yeah, it's something that, you know, can be a couple of inches, you know, a wire that's a couple of inches long. <laughs> right. That's the antenna. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, um, we uh, I'll get the model number of, of this... Uh, for a future show, but my uncle in Maine, he, uh, I think I've mentioned this before. He has a, he has two homes. One's a cottage that his daughter lives in. Uh, my cousin lives in, in the summer, but they're on opposite sides of a road from each other, uh, which means he cannot run a cable between the two. And, but he doesn't want to pay for two uh, cable modem connections. So he has a cable modem connection at the main house. And then he has two dedicated Wi-Fi routers with these like super hoopty, 
very unidirectional antennas on him and he aims them both at each other, you know, kind of darting through the trees and all of this and uh, and gets about um, it's about 10 or 11 uh, megabits back, you know, back and forth between the between the two. And it's it's probably about a 400 foot run uh, between the two. And, and, and he bridges the networks that way, which is pretty cool. I'll get the name of the antennas that he uses um, to, to share in the mm-hmm. show in the future. But uh, yeah, you know. It's Wi-Fi is cool, but that's all over 2.4. He's doing it over G. I think if he got stuff that would do N, you know, obviously he'd probably do a little bit better. Um, but it's really important to remember N does not equal five gigahertz necessarily. You can do it over five, but you can also right. do it over 2.4. Yeah. All I know is 2.4 is a mess. It can be. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much stuff in 2.4. Oh, microwave ovens, phones, uh, you know, two-way radios. Yeah. Uh, of course, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, I think, is on 2.4. That's I mean, right. It, everything. It, it, uh, who, 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 who designed this? The FCC. Well, they approved oh, it. Sh- nice going. Yeah. Well, you know, they got to do something. Unfortunately, the FCC doesn't have anything to do with the phone system, do they? Um, Yeah, I think they do. Yeah. Well, why do I mention the phone system, you may ask, Dave? I don't know. I'm going to tell you why, because someone out there, after listening to us, if you're still awake, you may want to call us with (laughs) a comment, with a question, with a tip. Uh, and if you wanted to call us, you, you would pick up a telephone of any sort, and you would call 206-666-GEEK, which is... 4335. You can email us at feedback at macgeekgab.com, or if you are a premium subscriber, which you can do still uh, and forever, uh, as we explain, premium at macgeekgab.com just for you. I'm not sure whether you said premium at MacGeekGap.com, Dave, or feedback at MacGeekGap.com. I I said feedback is open to everybody. Premium is open to those that have contributed and are active premium members. And we Ah, certainly appreciate that. Uh, You know, one other thing I'm going to point out here, and we can start sort of teasing features about this, but this is kind of one of the big ones. The MacGeekGap app uh, was submitted to the App Store this week. And uh, so who knows how long it'll take. And, and it's got the word Mac in it. So maybe they'll reject it completely outright. But uh, but assuming it makes it to the light of day and into your hands, uh, one of the things it can do is it allows you to send feedback right while you're listening to the show, either via email or audio comments right from your iPhone. So uh, so that's one of the cool things that it uh, that it does. But uh, we'll, we'll talk more yeah. about that when it comes out. So we'll just tease it a little bit there. It's going to be good stuff, though. I'm really excited about it. You can Skype us to Mac Geek Gab. That certainly works. <sighs> what else you got there, John? Facebook. Facebook. <laughs> Facebook.com slash Mac Geek Gab. And, of course, Twitter. I'm John Apron. He's Dave Hamilton. That other guy is Pilot Pete. Yeah, where is I never is, heard back from Pete tonight. I wonder uh, mm. uh he must just he must be traveling. He's flying in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Did I get them all? Uh yeah, Mac Geek Gab and uh, Mac Observer on the 
the, the Twitters. On the Twitters. And of course, MacGeekGab.com slash stream. We uh, aim to be here every Sunday night like clockwork uh, at 9 p.m. Eastern. But uh, but if, if, uh, if you subscribe or like us on Facebook, uh, Facebook.com slash MacGeekGab, as my good friend said, uh, we will always put the appointment out there. Uh, so you can you can subscribe and and uh, and be sure to know when we're when when it's all when it's all happening. It's all happening, John. All right. We would all like right. to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast for converting this to AAC for us and for you. Of course, we'd like to thank Cashfly uh, for hosting the show, uh, uh, hosting all the bandwidth for the show anyway. And then, of course, uh, in the podcast marketplace, BB Edit from Bare Bones, PDF Pen Pro for Mac and iPad from Smile, Gazelle.com to sell all your cool used Apple stuff, and Apple-on with Pimp Your Mac. And with that, we'll say thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks if you're a premium member. We appreciate that. Have a great week. And don't get caught. Made up.